So as I mentioned uh, last week, we will be concluding the book of Hebrews today as we look at Hebrews in chapter 13. And just to remind you again, we will have two weeks of a break, okay? Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And then after that, we're going to hear from our patron saint, St. Peter. We're going to look at his first epistle that he wrote to the church and see how he would instruct us and guide us in our spirituality, which will take up that last five weeks that we have until we break for the summer on our Sunday school. So last week in Hebrews chapter 12, as we looked at the end of that, much of this book, if we remember, first of all, it is written to the Hebrew Christians that are under double persecution. They were already being persecuted by the Jews. Then the Roman persecution had just begun at the time that the writer writes the, the epistle of Hebrews. And he's writing them, again, because they're turning away from their faith for fear of persecution. They're seeing their friends, their family members imprisoned, some of them martyred. And in order to save their own lives, they're either absolutely rejecting Christ or going back to their old practices and their old sinful ways. That's why the book of Hebrews was written. And all through the book of Hebrews is the writings of the revelation of who Jesus Christ is and by what He has done for us. Everything that He has prepared the way for His people to go before the Father and find salvation and eternally be with Him. We find that the priesthood of the Old Covenant was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. We find that actually the very design of the tabernacle in the Old Covenant was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. We've been looking at that the whole way. Last week we had another comparison. We had a comparison as uh, regarding the way that the Hebrew people were invited by God to come to Him just after they had been brought out of their captivity in Egypt. They're invited to come to the mountain and to be with God. And remember, they go to the mountain... And God descends upon the mountain in thunderings and lightnings and cloud and flashes of glory. It's an unbelievably awesome, fearful sight. And what do the people do? They run away. Moses, you talk with God. We'll listen to you. But we're not going to approach God. And the writer of Hebrews says, but you Christians... You've not come to that physical mountain where the people turned away. Because now, God doesn't descend upon a physical mountain. He descends upon His church and in the hearts of every one of God's people. This is the mountain that you've come to. And it is a mountain where angels rejoice. And the people of God gather together and they receive life. And they worship God. And they fellowship with God once again as it was in the garden. That's what the writer in the last half of Hebrew 12 is saying. You've not come to the mountain where you turn away in fear. In fear of being destroyed. You come to the mountain where God has made a way through the finished work of Jesus Christ, that through Christ we may connect once again with the Father and have fellowship with one another, with the angels, with all who have gone before us, and inherit eternal life. And this brings us to the conclusion 
in Hebrews chapter 13. Now, the writer concludes Hebrews chapter 13 in a very similar form that many of the epistle writers, you look at all the epistles, but either the last chapter or the last half of the chapter, it's like a close, there's a closing formula, it seems, that they use. Okay? And this is no different in Hebrews. Because in Hebrews 13, we can break the chapter down, the conclusion, so to speak, down into three parts. The first part is an exhortation to the conduct of the virtuous life in Christ. In other words, the writer, it's as as if he's saying, Dear children of God, remember that this is how we live, because this is who Christ is. And so live in this manner. The second part of the closing is an exhortation regarding the order of the church that is there to safeguard not only the faith, but the souls of mankind. That there is an order and to remain in that order to your life and your salvation. And finally, as with all the epistles, there is a closing benediction that usually now begins with now the grace or now the peace of God. We're going to see all of those things. So let's have a look. Who has Hebrews 13 verses 1 through 6? Joe, nice and loud for us. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Thank you. So here we have, in verses 1 through 6, the teaching on virtuous, a call back to virtuous living as a Christian. How then shall we live? And let's break this down so we see what's being said. The first verse is this, let brotherly love continue. And I find it is no surprise that the writer says, let brotherly love continue as the first and foremost in this list of virtues that he's going to go through. Because remember, these are the teachings of St. Paul. Even though it probably wasn't written by him, we think it may have been written by either Luke or somebody that was with Paul for much of his journey. And Paul, uh, so he continues this writing, let brotherly love continue. What does Paul say about love in 1 Corinthians 13? He says when he gives all the list of virtues and he's talking about love, he says, now in the end there's faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is what? Love. Love. There's a reason for that. Because God doesn't have love that ebbs and flows. See, humanity has love. And depending on how you treat me is going to be the degree to which in that moment I love you. Right? I mean, that's the way we work. We have to struggle beyond that to come into that agape love because the agape love is not a love that God has. It's the love that God is in His true person, in His nature. He always loves, you see. And so the call at first is let, let brotherly love continue. But I do love this. He doesn't say uh, walk in brotherly love. He says, let brotherly love continue. And that word continue is very important. 
In fact, uh, St. Augustine teaches us about that word continue. He teaches us that this very virtue that is not ever to cease, not ever to cease or become less fervent. St. Augustine said once about that very verse, let love within, that's within ourselves and within the body, let love within, I love this, have no intermission. No break. No pause. Because the love of God is absolutely inexhaustible and constantly flowing towards His creation. The question is not, does God love us? The question is, do we let Him? You see, do we choose Him? Do we choose to be recipients of the love of God? So let love have no intermission. Let it continue. Because, see, it's love, if you think about it, as to how we live together in the body. It is love that places our hand over our mouth so that our tongue that Holy Scripture regards as a sword, a two-edged sword, doesn't cut someone to the heart. And you know what I mean because we've all done it or been recipients of it. Words are powerful They not only steer our own soul, but they impact the souls of others. And it's love that stays the hand when someone is dashing against us with their humanity. It's love that puts our hand over our mouth and looks to the brokenness rather than the actions. You see, that's love. It's love that compels us, not if, when we have been wounded by one another, or those in our family, those in our workplaces, you name it. It is love that compels us to issue forth a forgiveness that the recipient can't understand. And that frees our soul and releases them from their actions. And that is the love of God, you see. And it's love that seeks only one thing, and that is to build up everyone else around me. Love lives for the absolute blessing of everyone that I come in contact with, whether it is my spouse, whether it is my children, whether it is my parish, whether it is all of those in the body of Christ, one to another. We live to be the blessing of God to one another. And so the writer says, let love continue. Let it be without intermission. And then he says the second virtue Do not forget to entertain strangers. For in doing so, some have entertained angels. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For in doing so, some have entertained angels. We hear the call to one of the very acts of love, and it's this. An act of love is true hospitality. A welcome to all. He's talking about not those within the body of Christ now. Let us live hospitably to those who are without. And I'm going to tell you right now that when I was preparing to come to this parish over four years ago, and I was talking to a number of the people that had been here for the duration, as long as it's been in existence, and I would ask them two questions. I would ask them, tell me what you see is the the parish's greatest strength and what's its greatest weakness, the way that you see it. You've been here forever, talk to me. And I'll tell you, hands down, every single one of them said that the greatest strength of this parish is its hospitality and welcome to others. And I'm going to tell you that I experienced it in my transition. 
And I'm going to tell you also that, I, that, that it, it is innumerable the number of testimonies of people who have visited this church, never have been here before, but visited this church. And when I inevitably ask them as they continue to come and I have a meeting with them and I ask them, what kept you here? Why did you stay here? There's always two answers. One, I've never experienced God like that. Always get that. Thank God. It's His church. Heaven and earth are meeting together. Why should we be surprised? But they say it. And the second is this. I felt legitimately welcomed. And they'll even go further. They'll say, you know, some churches will welcome you and you can tell they're they're making you feel welcome because they just want you to come back. That's different. They said, I felt like people wanted to know me when they welcomed me. That's the difference. So, that, so we're being called to this type of hospitality and to continue in it. Now, it's interesting that the follow-up phrase to that is, for in doing so, in showing such hospitality, some have entertained angels. Now, I'll tell you what I used to think. When you read that, it's like, okay, what? Perhaps we might have someone showing up, an angel, we entertain them, and so on and so forth. I mean, you read that, it sounds fairly literal, and it is, but it's referring to two things in the Old Testament. And the fathers universally will comment on this. How is it that entertaining strangers, some have entertained angelic beings? All the church fathers go to two parts of the Old Covenant. Or the Old Testament, I should say. The first one is the hospitality of Abraham. In Genesis in chapter 18. I'm looking around. Yeah, you see this icon just to the right of the icon of Christ. This icon is called the hospitality of Abraham. Okay? And the reason for that is God comes to Abraham in the form of three visitors. The triune God visits Abraham, a a, a theophany, so to speak, where God makes an appearance in human form of three, and they come to Abraham. Let me read this to you. It's from, again, it's from uh, Genesis in chapter 18. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. He bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, capital letters, okay, were given. My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. Do you see the hospitality of Abraham as God comes to him in this form? And he offers the washing of feet. He offers bread and water, refreshment, rest and refreshment. Remember those two words. Hospitality offering rest and refreshment to those who come to us. Okay? The second one that the fathers mention as to how it says be hospitable for you may some have entertained angels is Lot in Sodom. Lot in Sodom. It's from, it's from the next chapter, Genesis 19. Two angels 
are sent to Sodom just before God would judge Sodom and, and rain fire upon the city, destroying the city, to see if there are any righteous. You remember that story? Okay. So God sends two angels, and here it is in Genesis 19, verses 1 and 2. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself. Same thing as Abraham did. Both of them bowed themselves, humbled themselves. What does that say? I'm your servant. Hospitality is postured in I am your servant. You see. He bowed himself with his face toward the ground and he said, Here now, my lords, please turn to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. So we see extended hospitality. And that's what the writer's mentioning. When you extend the hospitality, you take on the servant who washes feet who brings refreshment to a human person, who is a vessel of rest for a human person. That's hospitality. And it's founded, the act of hospitality, you see how it's founded in love. We just talked about love. He said love without intermission. Let love continue. And what does love do? It always seeks the blessing of who? Not self. Other. And so the act of hospitality... I prostrate prostrate myself before you, and I serve you, and I wash your feet, which we're going to encounter here very shortly in Holy Week, when we're going to see our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great I Am, take on the utmost posture of a servant. And we bring refreshment to the human person and the soul. The third act of virtuous living that he reminds the people to in his closing is, remember the prisoners... Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Now here the reference, we're back to the Christians under persecution. You need to understand that. He's referencing those Christians that are being persecuted during this time. And the message is this. In the body of Christ, we are made one together through the God who is three yet one. When one is suffering persecution, we all are suffering persecution. And the one who is imprisoned, I'm going to come alongside him. You know, we see, has has anybody, by the way, seen yet the movie about the life, about St. Paul? Okay, church trip, field trip. Um, but what it does is it takes the light. I've, I've only read about the, the concept of the film. It's when Paul is in his last stage in his imprisonment before he would be martyred. Okay? And uh, Luke, St. Luke, comes by his side and he literally ministers to St. Paul and encourages St. Paul in this last stage. Spends a great amount of time with him. What is he doing? He's going to the prisoner and as if he was chained with him, coming alongside. And that's what we're being called to do. In fact, this idea when one is suffering persecution, we all are suffering persecution, take the conversion of St. Paul's story and remember what is said by Christ to him. Remember, St. Paul had been persecuting the church, imprisoning Christians, and even watching them martyred. He stood and watched the first martyr, Stephen, be martyred. And on the road to, uh, on the road to Damascus, Christ shows up 
And what does he say? He doesn't say Paul. No, excuse me, his name was Saul at that point. Saul, why are you persecuting these Christians? That's not what he says. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That, that statement says such a mouthful of how one our Lord makes us with Himself through baptism and continuously through the Eucharist. That Jesus did not say, why are you persecuting the ones who believe in Me? Why are you persecuting these people of love that have done you no wrong? He says, why are you persecuting Me? When you've done it to them, you're doing it to Me. You see... And so we're called to come alongside one for another. To come alongside in prayer and in support, in suffering and in persecution. Now let's think of something. I want to ask you something. We're given instructions to love one another. We're given instructions to care for the stranger and those in need. And we're being called in this chapter to go to those who are imprisoned. Can you think of an end time teaching that Jesus Himself gives regarding that very idea? Think about it. To love, to serve and care for the needy, and to visit imprisoned. Sheep and the goats. Do you remember the sheep and the goats? He says, in, in the last day, He will separate the sheep from the goats. Don't ever forget that it's going to be based on those three things. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The writer of Hebrews is giving the very teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his closing on the book of Hebrews, when he says how to live in those virtues, love, be hospitable, to the stranger, and visit the imprisoned. That's what we're seeing here. Then he moves on to the next point of virtue, and he says, Marriage is honorable, and the bed undefiled. I'm not going to go into this with great length, because he just makes that one statement. But he is exalting the sacrament of holy matrimony. Marriage is honorable. In the eyes of God, it's honorable much less in the eyes of men. And the marriage and the bed undefiled. He's speaking to the fact that there is only one place for union between man and wife, and indeed man and wife. There's only one place for that union to take place in the sacrament of holy matrimony because back in the garden God created Adam and then He created Eve. That by that union that He gave them to experience, that they would have the gift of being like God. That as they would come into union experiencing oneness together, what's the byproduct of this? God created all things. What did He give to Adam and Eve? You will create with the gift of life. Marriage is honorable. The next virtue, live without covetousness. 
So we testify that the Lord, that the Lord is my helper. Okay, what is covetousness? Desiring something that's not yours. Desiring something that's not yours. Absolutely. Particularly also desiring something that's not yours that somebody else has. Right? We go if we go one step further. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. And I love this. This. Um, it's almost like he's presenting a live without covetousness for a reason. Listen to what he says. So we testify that the Lord is my helper. See, I, in order for me to be covetousness, my eyes have to be off God. I have to place my eyes on something that my flesh wants. Okay? Or I have to place my eyes upon you that has what I want and wish I had and I'm insanely jealous that you have that size TV. Right? Or that job. Or that income. Or those good kids. Or I could keep going of what we can covet in this life. But the only way that we can get to covetousness is if our eyes are absolutely off of God and on to something else. Okay? You see that? In fact, the answer to covetousness, and every one of us, by the way, if we're honest, and if you're not honest, I'll talk to you about your own life later on, but if you're honest, if we're all honest about it, we all have areas of uh, pockets of covetousness. And I'm going to tell you what one of the best remedies of covetousness is. It's two things. Number one, I force myself to rejoice in the blessing of others. I get my eyes off my woe is me. I get my eyes off the passions of the flesh that cause me to desire something that I I have no need of. And I begin to rejoice with you. Thank God. Thank God that He's blessed you. I lift you up in praise. And the second is this. I cast my eyes back upon God and I begin thanking Him for every phenomenal blessing that is in my life. Because there is nothing in anyone's life that is sitting in this room. And there is no, there's nothing in anyone's uh, life filled with God that has less than they need. Not one. Not one of us are deficient because we have a God that says don't worry about your life. Consider the birds of the air. I feed them. You worried about you? You're the pinnacle of my creation. And so we, number one, to come against covetousness, we thank God for the blessings of others. And secondly, we bring to the surface probably something that should have been happening every day anyway, great thanksgiving for that day's blessing that God has provided for our manna, for our quail that He provided for that day. And that helps us beyond. In fact, what it helps us do, it helps us encounter that restful contentment in our lives that all of us long for. You know, it's amazing how sneaky both our flesh and the way that Satan tweaks our flesh is in the area of covetousness. You know, there are people that covet other people's gifts, talents, ministries, 
I could go on and on. We covet the most interesting things. When we know the truth that every person's gifts and talents and ministries and so on is God doing something for the benefit of the whole. For the benefit of us. For me. Right? Your gifts bless and benefit your priest. You see. And one another. And yet we do that. So we're to come against covetousness. Why? So that we don't testify that because I have what you had, we testify that the Lord alone is my helper. The Lord alone is the God my provider. Okay? In fact, that's one of the names he gives. We covered that last year in the names of God, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Okay? Alright, so that covers the list of virtues that the writer is saying, remember church to walk in these. And you can bet the reason he covered those, just like the other epistles covered different virtues, is because they were struggling in those virtues. Okay? And so the second part of the three parts of the conclusion is exhortation to the order of the church. Who has Hebrews 13, 7 through 9? And I, and I chopped it off there and went to verse 17. Who's got that? I do. Thank you. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods, which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Okay, so the writer writes about the order of the church that is for the souls of all men including those who are placed in the order of the church. Never forget that. Never forget that. So the first thing he says is, remember those who rule over you, their teachings whose faith you follow, and the way they live or lived in this world. So really what we're being exhorted to is those who are bishops. At that time, there were primarily bishops. And there started to be deacons. And when the church grew, the bishops couldn't be in every church. So the bishops created the priesthood, okay, that would go and be in their stead. That's why I'm not your spiritual father in a way. I stand in place of the one who is, your bishop, who stands in the place of the one who is, your metropolitan. And I could go on and on as to how this is set up as a family. But we're to hold fast to these things. Remember those who ruled over you, their teachings, whose faith you follow, and the way they live in this world. Because faith without works is what? (coughs) Faith without works is what? Dead. You know, one of the things when I... I should say that helped me in my journey into the Orthodox faith. When you grow up Protestant... You grow up kind of mostly living from what's called sola scriptura. Scripture alone. That's the way you grew up. It's the way that I grew up. Now I thank God that I grew up in a wonderful teaching scripture based church. Many pastors came out of it. But it was scripture alone. 
Okay? So when I started looking at the church and the Orthodox faith, one of the things that helped me bridge that gap and help understand why, why Scripture alone fails us, okay? and also how to embrace the order of the church, the hierarchy and all of its protection and safeguarding of the faith once handed down, actually came from St. Paul in his writing to, it's the Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me read this to you. Because again, we're being called to remember those who rule over their teachings and the faith that they lived. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, St. Paul says this, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or epistle. When I hit that in my journey, it made me scratch my head for a second. By their word, the apostles by their word and their epistle. Yeah, let me give you an example. We know that St. Paul was in Corinth for roughly three years as he established that church. Now, what do we have in Scripture? We have in Scripture two letters written back to the church of Corinth, First and Second Corinthians. When were they written? While he was there or after? After. He's writing after he had left them. What was he teaching for three years? What was he sharing with them? He, create, he, he started the church there. He taught them how to worship. He taught them how to live the faith in Jesus Christ. The letters we have, which we are to hold to, the epistles, the letters we have, we're trying to correct them because they weren't doing what he said when they were there for three years. Right? And so, yes. It's kind of like, you know... Wrote upon us as the living word. Yeah. We also believe that there's the living church. Mm-hmm. There's been a church from the beginning, you know, from the first few centuries. And Absolutely. That's a big difference. Right? Absolutely. And the reality is, it's because Christ at Pentecost, after he ascended, he did not send Emmanuel. He sent Himself by the Holy Spirit to fill a people who then started churches and taught the faith and passed it on and instructed by the authority that they were given by Christ. And the people followed to their salvation. You see? And so that's what we're being exhorted to here. Remember those who rule over you, their teachings, whose faith you follow, and the way they live or lived in this world. Why? Why, why, why? Because the very next statement, and I honestly never caught the tie-in to this until this week when I was preparing. Let me read this to you. I'm going to read the whole thing. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the tradition... I'm sorry. Remember those who rule over you, their teachings, whose faith you follow, and the way they lived in this world. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you see the tie there? Why does the faith of the church never change? Because the faith isn't about Jesus Christ. Our faith is Jesus Christ. The person. The one who placed Himself within us, made us the ark of salvation called the church, and placed this hierarchy in place to superintend and protect from false teachings. Because false teachings ruin souls. You see. So we hold fast to these things. Every Orthodox church 
looks at its priest and sees its priest very familial. When we talk about hierarchy, one of the things we always have to remember that this culture seems to never be able to understand. Because, by the way, you say hierarchy in anything, whether it's hierarchy in relationships, hierarchy in church, this culture dismisses it. It says no such thing because this culture has become humanistic. Everything comes and emanates from the individual and whatever I say is. That's where our culture is. But the reality is, and that reality that the culture cannot embrace, is that in the church is a hierarchy of equality. You are looking here at someone who by the laying on of hands, a human being, in the faith, a human being, faulty and frail, has some gifts to share, but just a human sharing in the same Christian journey that each one of you are sharing in. And yet God had the bishop put his hand on my head upon the altar and pray a prayer that says, by grace may his deficiencies be covered by your all-sufficiency for the sake of your people. So even though there is a hierarchy and I am a spiritual father even to those that are 20 years older than me and to those 20 years younger than me, we look at it familial. Okay? We don't see it as a place of power. It's Papa. It's Father who's here to help me grow up in Christ. One who's growing up in Christ Himself every day. That's how we're supposed to look at this. Okay? Which is why the next statement is, the writer of Hebrews says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. What do children learn in a healthy family? God in His law said, Obey your father and mother that you might live a long life and your days may be full. There's a blessing associated with the fulfilling of that law. Why is it that when a child obeys, and I'm talking again in a healthy situation, health, fairly healthy family situation, when a child obeys a father, what does it lend itself to? What does that produce in them spiritually? Think about it. Huh? Produces love. Produces love. Yeah. Joy. How are they going to respond to their heavenly father if they posture themselves to live in obedience to their earthly father? Yeah. If they're used to that loving, remember this key, loving submission to a trustworthy father then that translates, that translates in their spiritual life to the same with their Heavenly Father. And God knows, you hear me say this all the time, God knows that there are probably many of us even in this room that didn't necessarily grow up with a healthy father or mother to lovingly submit to. That is the case a lot. And so God has that healing work at hand to do in their lives so that they understand it's another reason why God has given us the church. 
so that those who didn't have that in their families, they now do. And they can learn that loving submission and obedience that releases the soul to the freedom of having to think, I've got to do everything on my own and I determine everything. It frees us, not binds us. Okay? And so finally, in conclusion, we have the benediction given, as we see in all the epistles. Now may the God of peace... I'm sorry, somebody has that. Who has that scripture? Yes. Travis, go ahead, please. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In this one benediction, he so perfectly summarizes the entire writing of Hebrews. And may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, the great shepherd, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, he's been doing nothing but talking about Christ, our great high priest, and sacrifice for us. Make you complete in every way. Those Hebrew Christians who had denied their faith are being called back by this letter into Christ so that the Good Shepherd, their great high priest who shed his blood, can make them complete. That the work that he began in them may be finished by our Lord Jesus Christ in the end. And he says the same to us. My prayer for you is that those that have stuck out 20 sessions on Hebrews, which is what we've done. The teaching and the revelation of just how far our Lord Jesus Christ not only has gone, but the position that eternally He stands in on our behalf will constantly be before our faces. Because when you see that, you see a love you'll never understand. And you will want to lean into it all the days of your life. That's my prayer. Let's stand.